This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. A new book out this year details how West Virginia lawmakers and utility regulators are reluctant to do anything that would displace coal. Any other state, you would have utilities that would take advantage that I mean, developers would come to West Virginia, get those based on those tax incentives, and the utilities would scoop up those resources. That story and more coming up this West Virginia morning. The National Park Service wants to demolish 16 structures in the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve. Jessica Lilly reports. The National Park Service says the structures are hazardous, non-historic, and abandoned. The dilapidated, overgrown conditions create maintenance burdens and areas that are vulnerable to trespassing. They expect to save about $800,000 a year in maintenance and law enforcement costs. The project already has funding from the Great American Outdoors Act Legacy Restoration Fund. The money is part of an effort to address the extensive maintenance backlog in national parks. The public is invited to attend an open house on Thursday, December 8th in Glen Jean. You can find more about the open house and a list of structures on the demolition list at our website at wvpublic.org. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jessica Lilly in Athens. The COVID-19 pandemic took attention away from the opioid crisis, while in many ways it made it worse. More than 100,000 people died from overdoses last year alone, according to West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey. In March 2020, the Drug Enforcement Administration allowed doctors to prescribe treatment medications like buprenorphine using telemedicine services. This practice remains in effect until the COVID-19 public health emergency expires. Telehealth expands access for patients who may have previously struggled to receive the medication. An estimated 28 million Americans live more than 10 miles and about 3 million live more than 30 miles from a medical provider. A bipartisan group of state attorneys general has written to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland asking that the telehealth access for these medications be extended. Folklorist Emily Hilliard knows a lot about Appalachian culture. She's poured some of that knowledge into a new book. Making Our Future, Visionary Folklore and Everyday Culture in Appalachia. Reporter Zach Harold sat down with Hilliard to talk about Appalachian culture and hot dogs for Inside Appalachia. Emily Hilliard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about uh, this uh, amazing new book of yours. Thanks so much, Zach. Well, there, there's so much that we could cover I would like to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, your chapter on hot dogs. Can you tell me about kind of how the craze began? Well, it's kind of linked to industry and immigration and popularization of mass culture, uh, urbanization and European migration. Um, So there were a lot of instances where... um, Basically, Greek and maybe Italian immigrants were setting up hot dog stands in West Virginia. Um, And mostly that was in major urban centers in industrial areas. And I think that's why we see the hot dog 
really being popular in West Virginia in the southern coal fields, the northern coal fields, and then industrial cities like, um, you know, the Ohio River towns of Huntington and Parkersburg. But hot dogs really seemed to boom in the 1910s and 1920s in West Virginia. I love the line in the book uh, from a Fairmont newspaper that calls Charleston, quote, one of the greatest places on earth for hot dog eaters. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was amazing to find. Um, I found this, um, well, I guess it was several articles um, about hot dogs in Charleston. And I found there, there were at least um, four hot dog stands in Charleston in the early 1920s, and three of four of them were owned by Greek immigrants. And there was this amazing stat in one of the articles. It said that 22,000 dogs a day were sold out of those four hot dog stands at one point. And that is about one for every two residents in Charleston at the time. And then uh, I have this highlighted in my copy. They describe it in a very evocative way, right? Like to, to help people conceptualize how many hot dogs that is. If all the hot dogs consumed in a year in Charleston were strung together, the string could extend to Huntington and back and still have enough left to run down to St. Albans on the one side of the road and back on the other. <laughs> yeah, and then I think it goes on to say, or it could go all the way to Morgantown. And to return to, to your point, I found it interesting that it was so tied to industry. Because this, I mean, it's cheap, it's portable, right? This is the perfect thing for, for people who are, you know, doing shift work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I talked to the descendants of A.J. Valos, um, who was a Greek immigrant born in 1894, and he had actually worked as an indentured servant in the hot dog industry in New York, and then moved to Parkersburg and opened the Broadway Sandwich Shop, which is still open. Um, he opened that in 1939, and his relatives were saying that they thought that much of the success of his shop was because it was right across the street from the Mountain State Steel Foundries, and it was also close to a high school, so they got students from um, the school coming for a snack or for a meal, and then there were some other um, companies right nearby, too, so factory workers would grab hot dogs, um, you know, before or after a shift. Reading that section about the Broadway sandwich shop in Parkersburg. I've eaten there. I've had hot dogs there and had no idea of this history of it. That's that's what I love about this book is that it, it does. It really takes things that you think you know and, and explores the story behind it. You can hear more of that story Sunday morning at 7 and Sunday evening at 6 on Inside Appalachia. Good morning. This is West Virginia Morning. It's 7.51. Becoming mostly sunny today. High temperatures in the 40s. Clear skies overnight with lows in the 20s. And sunny tomorrow with highs in the 40s. Support for the weather forecast is provided by the attorneys at Taurus Save Law, representing firefighters, police officers, and West Virginia families. Information at TaurusSaveAlaw.com.
James Van Nostrand is the director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development at the West Virginia University College of Law. In his book, The Coal Trap, published this year, Van Nostrand writes that West Virginia lawmakers and utility regulators are reluctant to do anything that would displace coal. That, he argues, has led to higher electricity rates for residents over time. Curtis Tate spoke with Van Nostrand about coal's dominance in the state. There are big incentives in recently passed federal legislation to build wind and solar generation. What are some of the obstacles to getting that to happen in West Virginia? Any other state, you would have utilities that would take advantage. That, I mean, developers would come to West Virginia, get those based on those tax incentives, and the utilities would scoop up those resources because basically those incentives improve the economics, which means utilities are probably going to be able to acquire those resources at a lower cost than without the incentives. But there's no place for those electrons to go with West Virginia utilities because the PSC is telling them we don't want you to we don't want you to stop burning coal as much as you have been, right? I mean, we want you to continue the 69 to 70 percent historical capacity factor of the coal plants. So there's no room for those renewable electrons to go. They're gonna they're gonna be sold into the market, right? They're gonna be sold into PJM which is much more risky for a developer than entering into some sort of a long-term power purchase agreement with a utility. Well, the utilities themselves would be taking advantage of these tax incentives, right, to locate and to expand in West Virginia. But, you know, until the until the PSC changes its policies with respect to coal plants, um, it's this, I mean, it's a zero-sum game in West Virginia for the most part because... You know, there's no load growth in Appalachian Power Service territory. There's some load growth probably in Mon Power and Potomac Edison Service territory, but not much. So whatever, you know, whatever green electrons are generated would displace coal electrons. So, you know, and that just won't fly with this commission. The Public Service Commission's consumer advocate has testified that Mon Power should purchase the Pleasance Power Station, which is scheduled to shut down next year. What are the drawbacks of that proposal? Yeah, is is Pleasant Stations better than Fort Martin? Yeah, for all the reasons she says in her testimony. It has, it has the SCR, right, for emissions. But, you know, Mon Power is 100% coal-fired. And she never discusses, you know, what about energy efficiency programs? What about renewable resources, right? I mean, it's like all the things that she cites in her testimony that have driven up Mon Power's costs which are incredibly high prices for coal, supply chain issues because the railroads can't haul the coal and the coal suppliers are sending the coal to other places, the high NOx allowances costs. Gee, as that's a given. Like, well, that's just the, that's just the way it is. Like, well, no, that's the way it is when you, run, when you burn coal to generate electricity. Maybe you should think about not burning coal to generate electricity. Maybe you should think about... You know, the resource mix that every other state in the country is is following, which is more wind and solar and energy efficiency. And I'm not a big on natural gas, but natural gas is obviously better than coal as well. But the way you avoid fossil fuel price volatility is not burning fossil fuels. Some states use securitization to phase out coal-fired power plants. In West Virginia, the utilities are using it to spread out their fuel costs over time.
You say in your book that's unwise. Why? Securitization. And, you know the you know the Rocky Mountain Institute is is like the national expert on securitization, um, and they're actually pointing to some of the stuff in the Inflation Reduction Act that you can basically get loan guarantees to do the same sort of thing. And what they were telling us was you can avoid having to go to the legislature because this is these are like DOE loan guarantees that allow you to do pretty much the same thing. Energy transition issues defined much more broadly, but it would cover, you know, the refinancing the the existing the existing uh, investment on prematurely retired coal plants. And we had RMI, like I mentioned, we had RMI on that call when we met with AEP because they wanted securitization on the agenda. <laughs> and then we thought this is great. And then then we find out the securitization they wanted was to finance the $297 million ENEC case. I'm going like, we're not going to support that. It's like, what a waste of RMI's time. But of course, RMI is saying, well, look at this thing in the Inflation Reduction Act. Even if more broadly, if you want to do things to help the energy communities and transition away from fossil fuels, you can use this. This is a lot of money. And AEP is like, oh, yeah, we're aware of that. (laughs) No, you're not. You might be aware of it. They might be aware of it in Columbus, but no one in West Virginia gives a rip about it because they're never going to do it in West Virginia. They're afraid to do it. They're afraid to do anything to move away from coal in West Virginia. That was James Van Nostrand of West Virginia University speaking with Curtis Tate about his recently published book, The Coal Trap. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Amelia Nicely, Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, Eric Douglas, Jessica Lilly, Liz McCormick, Randy Yowie, and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning. <laughs>